Hello and welcome to Risk Chats with Affirm. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. Today we're speaking with John Basso from Veterans Affairs and all about their ERM program and the multiple hats he wears over there to make it a success. We'll talk about performance management, governance strategy, portfolio analysis, data analytics, and the impact of several new laws and regulations and how you should take these all into consideration when building out your program. So without further ado, here's the show. Good morning and welcome to the podcast. Happy to have today on the show, John Basso from the VA. Good morning, John. Hey, good morning, Paul. How are you? Good, very good. So uh, why don't we start off um, just a little bit about your background, you know, what you're doing over at the VA and what your role is with the, the ERM program. Sure, you bet. I'm the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Planning and Performance Management in a VA headquarters office called the Office of Enterprise Integration. And that uh, office is designed to try to pull together the different parts of the organization, particularly in terms of the management functions and some of the key programs that, that are run across VA. I'm uh, inside of one of kind of the, the main work streams inside that office, and I have five teams that are part of planning and performance management. I have the department's strategic planning team, the department's performance management team, the department's enterprise risk management team, the department's governance team, and a team that we call business architecture and portfolio analysis that is building a consolidated business data environment and being able to look at it using business architecture so we can look across the enterprise. It's basically our data team to make sure that the decisions we make are informed by data. I've been at VA for about three and a half or four years. And when I first got here, I ran the risk team and then ended up moving up to, to the position I'm in now. And, uh, and because of that, I've really been involved with risk and uh, strategic foresight, which are two areas that we combine at VA. Since, uh, since really it's reinvigoration following the publishing of A123. Okay, well speaking of invigoration, let's start with that. So uh, my understanding was when you came uh, to the program, you know, things were maybe needing in, in need of a pickup, kind of revitalizing the program, and I'd be very uh, interested to hear how, how you went about doing that. Yeah, absolutely, it's a great question. You know, I, we, we did need probably some revitalization. VA had had a history of doing enterprise risk management. And uh, over time, we had developed a reasonable capability in that area. But, uh, but also over time, um, it had lost a little bit of its value proposition from the eyes of leaders. And I think, frankly, in many ways, it had become a little bit too complex for leaders, and they didn't see how the effort that went into it was leading to a high payoff for them and for their teams. And perhaps we can talk a little bit more about that later on. But because of that sentiment, um, and because we had the honestly great fortune of having A123 published, we were able to sort of pivot the program a little bit to provide the kind of value that the department was looking for. I mentioned great fortune because I think OMB did us a real favor in publishing it. Um, what it did is open an opportunity to have the department and any federal department or agency uh, look at risk and look at it in a much more serious way than we had before, along with, 
think was a, a pretty reasonable framework to, to approach it. And so because A123 was published, and because we had moved to try to simplify our approach to risk, we were able to sort of combine those. What we did was stand up a relatively large working group of folks who dealt with risk directly, or at least as part of their jobs, across this very large department. We have about 380,000 employees, and this year we'll have a little bit over a $200 billion budget. And so we felt that if we were gonna really restart risk, it couldn't just be in a narrow risk silo. It had to be across the department's different administrations and business lines. And so that's what we set about to do, was find the people who were really engaged with risk or perhaps ought to be engaged with risk and let them have a voice in building out our framework and our implementation plan to have a risk program that made sense. And we purposely set out to not do too much at once, to try to slowly move our way towards a reasonable risk profile that would help the department understand what its priority areas were. And we felt that a reasonable risk profile meant that we had leaders uh, all the way down to the program level identifying risks and some process to prioritize that. And so essentially what we asked folks to do is develop their own risk profile, their own set of top risks. And then we came together as a group after we built a governance process to look through and understand which of those should be department level risks, which should be combined into portfolios and some, some other key elements. We purposely set out to make sure that it was a simple process that it involved a lot of people, and that at each step we really tried to think through, what's the value here? You know, what's the value to leaders? How can we keep this from becoming a risk program where risk people talk to other risk people about risk stuff, but we never get out of our own little stovepipe or silo? And so we spent quite a bit of time focusing on that as we build out our framework and focusing on keeping the quote-unquote cost of doing risk, meaning the amount of time, the number of reports and all that very low, and really purposely thinking through what the value would be to our, our leaders and other stakeholders. Right, and uh, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you wear a lot of hats over the VA, and, and in, in a way that's probably been very helpful to your success because, you you know, you're in the right rooms with the right people to kind of spread the, the message, and, and, and for the areas that you lead, you incorporate a risk perspective or approach to it. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. You know, when we first started, we, uh, like I said, really focused on getting our risk processes right, on identifying risks in a simple way and raising them up and thinking about which ones would be enterprise risks, and on connecting to internal controls. Over time, I think probably sort of organically because of the position I have, we've spent uh, additional time making sure we're connecting between how we look at strategy, how we look at performance, and how we look at risk. Um, and we really see the three having to fit together in the department, both because it's, in, at least in my view, the right way to do risk management, um, particularly enterprise risk management at department headquarters level, um, and because it's more attractive to leaders. They, they tend to not want to talk about just risk. They want to talk about what's our strategy here and what are we trying to accomplish? What outcome are we seeking? And how are we measuring that? You know, what's the performance management piece of that? What's our performance path? And both those are wonderful, but unless you're also thinking about uncertainty and what's up in front of you, along with the set of realized risks or issues that have already borne out in a particular program, unless you're really thinking about how to manage or mitigate those, 
with your strategy and with your performance, we found leaders aren't as compelled. You know, they want to see all three combined. And as you mentioned earlier, I'm fortunate enough to have those together in, in the same office. And what's been probably most meaningful to us, perhaps, you know, particularly over the last year as we've tried to mature the program, is that we also have a major voice in the governance process for the department. And being able to integrate risk into decision-making along with strategy and performance, along with the use of data, focused on whatever the major priorities are for the set of leaders we have, and the major management uh, issues that we're tackling has been really helpful. You know, I think otherwise, if you can't get risk involved with leaders, they may forget that risk-based thinking is a very effective way to prioritize and to tackle the set of challenges that you have. So, so that governance element's been really important to us. And I'm not talking about just risk governance. I'm talking about the broader governance process in an organization and how you integrate risk-based thinking and risks into the decision-making of the department. Right. So I think we'd be interested to hear a little bit about you know the actual mechanics of how you incorporate risks that you've identified into strategy sessions or planning sessions. So, you know, you, you've gathered the risks throughout the, the department. Um, and then, I mean, again, what's the mechanics? You physically go into these strategy meetings with that information in your pocket and b- bring it up and, and make sure that they're incorporating that in their, to their thinking? Or what, what's the strategy here? Yeah, we end up actually, you know, kind of a two-directional, at least two-directional arrow whenever we think about this stuff. So, so let me just give you an example of what I mean by that. Obviously, when you build a strategic plan, one of the key, one of the, it, it becomes a foundationally important document for a risk team. You know, risks are largely those set of challenges that emerge or may emerge that can impact your ability to achieve your objectives. And so a strategic plan should lay out a set of goals, objectives, and strategies that help you to articulate what you're really trying to accomplish, and that helps focus the risk team on what's really important to the department, so we're zeroing in on the risks in those areas. And in turn, the strategy and risk team have always worked together. You know, the the risk profile that we put together as part of A123 asks us to identify which objectives these risks align to. So that's always been a pretty clear relationship. What we did was we also did a root cause analysis of all the candidate risks that had been turned into our risk profile in order to see what what are the root causes that are underlying what may be going wrong in the department. And from that root cause analysis, we built a separate goal and set of objectives as well as strategies into the VA strategic plan. So we kind of flipped this, the script there a little bit and reversed the direction of the arrow where not only did we have the risk team thinking about risk to achievement of objectives, we had the strategic planning team working with the risk team to understand the root causes to a lot of our risks so that we could build a goal, objective, and set of strategies you know, that address those root causes so that, so that we weren't just trying to you know, douse a small fire with a bucket of water. We were thinking about the long-term strategy of how to build fire breaks to keep major problems from emerging across the department with a risk-based look at things. So that's one piece where we do it. The other thing that we really spend a lot of time doing is as we build out, as we built out the strategic plan, we've built out a series of operational plans. They're essentially large scale implementation plans for the major things that we're doing. And with that, 
we first make sure that we've looked at the risk register and risk profile to see what risks may already be occurring in that space so that the operational plan can address those risks. And secondly, we try to do a real risk identification and assessment effort with those operational plans, whether they're for a new initiative that's particularly important to the department or something that we do year in and year out, but still need to understand what risks are both existing and may may occur in the future, emerging risks. And so that's two of the ways we put those in. We've also spent quite a bit of time thinking about the relationship between risk and performance, and perhaps we can talk about that a little bit later. Sure. No, well, and actually, I'm curious to speak about it now because I, I want to understand then, okay, so you've got your strategy set, you got your plans. So now we're out there, we're operating, you know, we're measuring our progress. Um, you know, what, what, where, do, where do you come in then at that point as far as your risk-based approach? Yeah, so great, great question. I'm glad, I'm glad we decided to, to tackle it. So we, you know, I mentioned we run the governance process and in VA that a major meeting in that governance process is called the VA Operations Board. And there's uh, two different versions of the operations board to make it simple. One is sort of a mid-month version that really focuses in on what the CXOs are doing and what management issues we see that are emerging and we do deep dives into those. And as we do those, we take a hard look at what risks are both occurring in each of our CXO areas and what risks might be impacting the management issues. So I wanna put that aside for a moment and talk about the second iteration of our ops board each month and that's one that's focused on performance budget and risk and by budget i mean budget execution and so we've purposely over the last year combined what was a separate budget execution review and a separate performance review into a single budget execution and performance review for the obvious point that we want to understand both if we're executing our budget effectively and how that's related to the performance that we're seeing in our key programs. And with that, obviously, as we both look at budget execution and performance, we start seeing some risks emerge. And we've found it pretty helpful to think about the three together, performance, budget, and risk, in a monthly operations look. And when we look at performance and budget, we are looking at a couple different areas strategic performance, how are we doing in this long-term quarter after quarter um, progress that we should be making towards our our strategic ends, high visibility issue performance on those particular issues that are most important to our stakeholders, what's our performance look like, and we have a set of measures for that, and then operational performance that we tend to group into five quick categories, just so you know. We tend to look at access for those programs of ours that deal with access, and then we look at timeliness, quality, efficiency, and customer experience or customer satisfaction. And so we look at those in our operational performances. Now I mentioned those three categories, performance, strategic performance, high visibility issue performance, and that operational performance, because they kind of serve as three circles that come together in a Venn diagram, and because there is overlap between them. And in each case, what we're using some of the performance measures to understand is, do we see some risks starting to emerge? both in how we're dealing, how, whether or not we're achieving our, our, our performance path that we ought to be on, or whether or not we're starting to see some underlying operational issues that are gonna cause a risk in the future to how we reduce our disability backlog, or how we bring veterans in to give them 
healthcare, whatever it happens to be. So we do tie in essentially key performance indicators with key risk indicators to understand what's really happening and to try to get a feel for what might go wrong. And so this is this earlier conversation we had where we believe that if you can look at strategy, performance, and risk together, and in this case, add in budget execution, that you have a much more complete set of information for a leader to make a decision on. And then perhaps in a little bit, we can also talk about how we use risk appetite as part of that. Right. Well, and, uh, and actually, as far as decision-making, so there's a new law, the evidence-based decision-making you know, decision law. Um, I believe you're, you're part of the, the folks that are trying to get that going at the VA. Can maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you bet. So uh, evidence-based uh, decision-making and this particular law, the Foundation, Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, um, we think opens up an opportunity to really zero in on something that's important to managing an organization. So I'm just going to try to draw a quick mental map uh, for, for the listeners on, on a simple way to think about this act. This act is asking us to use evidence in at least three major ways. They're asking us to think about how we use evidence and how we build a quote-unquote learning agenda to make informed decisions about our policies, our major big P policies. Number two, how do we use evidence to but to make budgetary decisions and to make major investments? And then number three, how do we use evidence to improve how our programs perform over time? And so those are think of those as kind of three columns to a table. The three rows to the table then in, in a simple way to think about this construct is that are kind of the types of evidence we're talking about. One, can we look at performance evidence of any sort? And I'm gonna group in risk-based evidence into that, though I think it crosses a number of different streams here. So that's one row, performance evidence. Number two, can we take a look at program evaluations and understand what's really happening over time and how that influences what we need to learn about and how we make decisions in those earlier three categories I mentioned? And then number three, can we do some thoughtful research into these areas so that we're making both policies, investment decisions, and program improvements that are based on research? And so that's kind of a you know nine-cell matrix that I just drew, three, three rows and uh, three columns. And so the Evidence Act is asking us to look at that and to do it in a statistically significant way involving data to understand whether or not we you know, what evidence would suggest we should be doing in our major policy, major budgetary investment, and major program improvement decisions. And, and, to, and it gives us this structure to think about how to build that evidence. Well, given all that, I think it's safe to say that the risk community has been pretty effective at, build, should be pretty effective and has been pretty effective at doing risk assessments including root cause analyses to build a body of evidence that helps us understand how we should be doing our major policy, policy decisions and what some of the ramifications are of those policy decisions. Same thing with budgetary investments and same thing with how we should improve programs. So risk should really see itself, the risk community, as a component of each part of that kind of nine cell matrix and think through how we can contribute to the kind of learning that's necessary to make effective evidence-based decision-making, just as we should be thinking hard about how we use data to inform uh, our understanding of risks. And to me, that's a real, in 2019, that's a really key element of how we approach enterprise risk management 
particularly in a large enterprise like ours, is the use of data and the kind of consolidated data look that uh, modern technology is allowing us to do as we look at our programs. Right, yeah, and I think the evidence-based approach just in, you know, philosophically even beyond the law for risk management seems very important because, you know, think back to that book Freakonomics, you know, they kind of had all these, people had theories as to why things happen or why things work and then they look at the actual data and they're like, oh, nope, that's not really the the reason at all. This is the reason and that's what we should be worried about. So, I mean, it just seems like, yeah. Great example, you're absolutely right. I used to, I was an economics professor before I, I came into government and uh, I, I think that's exactly right. Sometimes, so I think sometimes the government and private sector, having worked there for five years, is guilty of making decisions based on anecdotes. Uh, you, you hear a story, you presume that that story is representative of everything that's going on in a program, an institution, whatever it happens to be, and you make a decision based on that, whereas data and evidence are a much more sound way to you know, combined perhaps with the anecdote or story to really understand what's going on. Right. Well, let's turn back to uh, risk appetite and even just risk culture in general. I mean, I think everybody knows several years ago the VA had some high-profile things happening, and you know things are always coming up, unfortunately. But you know, so what? What would you? How would you characterize the risk culture and then the appetite that you all have over there? Sure. Um, so I'm going to start with culture, and then we'll we'll turn to appetite. You know, I think the risk culture of any large organization can't be painted with one broad brush, and particularly a large organization like ours that has so many different businesses. There's a big difference between our home loans business and our healthcare business, or our disability compensation business and uh, our cemetery business, whatever it happens to be. And so I think the risk appetite is a little bit different in each of them, and the culture is a little bit different in each of them. Culturally, what we've tried to do is, uh, and we've had great support from our leaders, is try to become increasingly transparent about our risks. The way you become increasingly transparent about the risks is it certainly starts from the top where people are willing to talk about it. And uh, some of the listeners may know that VA did a State of the VA speech at the White House briefing room about a year and a half ago where literally the secretary came up and laid out the top risks in the department. And, a re- and, and that came from a conversation where we talked about how transparent we should be with our risks. And he wanted to be very transparent uh, because he felt like that would set the right tone. And in many ways, from a risk team perspective, what it helped us do is really zero in on what was important. And transparency leads to having a large group of folks helping solve a problem, meaning helping mitigate a risk. And so that was really important to us to have that tone set at the top, to have you know, risk management become a team sport, not, not an I sport. Um, and, and to start having that kind of, that kind of climate and culture trickle down lower for it to really trickle down and for people to be willing to identify risks and voice risks, a couple things have to happen. Uh, one, they certainly cannot be punished, so to speak for, for that kind of thing. People have to realize that that there's a problem when, when folks are not identifying risk, and in particular, when they know that there's a risk and they're unwilling to voice it. And so we tried to flip that and essentially say, the expectation is that you will voice your risks, and the expectation that you should have of us is that we're gonna help you solve that risk. We're, we're not gonna punish you for it. And so this is the value proposition that we talked about kind of at the beginning of the, 
of the podcast, part of the value is getting them additional resources to help solve their problems. And one of the magic elements of enterprise risk management is that a lot of people have the same risks and problems across a complex organization. And so we can help build enterprise solutions to those that are cost effective for the taxpayer, really impactful for the program owner, et cetera, et cetera. And so a way to make a risk culture work is to start having people see real payoff for identifying their risks. Another way to do it is to not make it too difficult to do. Um, make the tools that you provide your risk practitioners and, and program leads simple to use. Uh, don't make it overly complex and then let, let them see the value from it. I think that begins to get the climate where it, where it needs to go. But it takes time. It takes real time to uh, get folks willing, willing to do that. And you have to constantly work at it. As part of that, I think it's really meaningful to include risk and decision-making meetings, as I was talking about earlier, at, at each kind of level of the organization, at the program level, certainly at the administration and at the department headquarters level, because then, then people get used to that kind of proper risk culture where, where, where you're thinking about risk. And to that point, risk appetite becomes important. Risk appetite obviously suggests that we do indeed have an appetite for some risks. And that's just a starting point in getting culture, which is to say we all know that there are risks out there and we're willing to accept some of them. But by using risk appetite, you can have a thoughtful conversation about that. What we found particularly useful is to try to zero in. When we say something like, hey, well, how's our, what's our appetite in this, in, on this particular risk or this particular portfolio or program area? Because I think it's different depending on the program if you're in a complex organization. We, what, we really, what we really try to get to is, okay, let's quantify that. Because if you can quantify how much risk you'll accept in a particular space, it serves as the endpoints for a mitigation plan. It serves as the target for what you're aiming for, because what you're trying to do is take an existing risk uh, and, and its uh, potential impact and likelihood and reduce it to a point where it's within the appetite. And by putting it, like I said, by putting it in concrete terms, then you start getting a real feel for how you can use risk to both prioritize and as a key mechanism in planning. Right, and I'm guessing you need to constantly assess, reassess if these things are at the right level tolerance because you know your appetite may be 20 percent today but then something crazy happens and now it needs to be you know you know zero percent or whatever i mean things change you have to constantly reassess yeah i think that's absolutely right and i think actually each time you reassess it it's a pretty meaningful conversation with your leaders um and, and that because it really makes you think through um many things you know what including the the strategy that you're taking to to solve something and what, whether it's appropriate, including how many resources you're putting towards something, so on and so forth. Okay. Well, so one last question to kind of wrap it up, bring it all back together again. So, in your opinion, as a you know, as a risk professional, what what do you need to think about as far as your program? I mean, we don't want things to stagnate. You know, uh, what's the best way to kind of make sure your program is successful and keeps uh, evolving throughout the years? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the most important thing is to not be a risk team that waits for folks to come to you. I think you need to go out and spend time with your stakeholders, find out what's important to them, and tailor products to their needs on the timeline that works for them. And so, for instance, if uh, you believe risk has an important 
voice should have an important voice in how you do programming or how, how you build your pro, out years program, then you need to go to the programming team and ask what their timeline is and what information might help them build a program that is help, helping you, you know, and your team and, pro, and uh, program owners re- mitigate risk over the long run. Uh, same thing holds true with strategic planning, with your information technology professionals, and certainly with your leadership. If you can have regular conversations with your leadership on what's important to them, then you can build risk products that meaningfully help them make decisions. And I do think you almost always need to have your ear to the ground because there ends up being a series of both requirements, government requirements, and opportunities that emerge over time. Uh, PMIAA, the Program Management Improvement Accountability Act, the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, changes to A123, changes to how your organization is approaching something or a new priority for your organization are all places where risk teams can come in with meaningful products that help folks make lead, uh, make effective decisions and help uh, steer the ship in a way that, that is uh, more conducive to achieving our, our objectives. And so all I would say is that as we've matured our risk program over time, one, we've tried to add kind of elements that modernize it, like a heavy use of data and analytics and simple tools that we put up online um, so that people can follow through and have simple worksheets to do and that, that sort of thing. And then two, that we've really tried to figure out where the value is for our, our business partners and stakeholders so that we're coming to them, not asking them to come to us. Right. Yeah. And what I, what I really like about what I'm hearing about your program is that, you know, it's not like you're a, a chief risk officer is just kind of taking some notes, writing down a risk list and saying, OK, good luck to you. It's more you're coming in there with, you know, we've identified some issues, but hey, let's uh, let's here's some approaches that we can actually manage. Let's, let's here's some data analytics we could do. Here's some uh, policies we could put in place. I mean, you're very active, it sounds like, in really putting forward value and solutions. Yeah, we try to be. We have a lot of work left to do, very large organizations. So there are all so, you know, I'm describing it in general. Different parts of the organization are different maturity levels and in each part we know we can get better. So so we have a great group of risk professionals in the department and continue to work to try to tie together and integrate how we do business, um, both with each other and across the department and the set of tools that we can use to be more impactful. Well, John, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing uh, all your efforts at VA with everybody. I really appreciate that. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks very much for giving me the time. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in. Visit us at afirm.org. You'll see all our list of podcasts. Keep coming back as we'll be putting out many more, many more. I'm trying to get them out every couple of weeks to you guys. And if you have any recommendations of folks you'd like to listen to, please let us know. So until next time, this is Paul Marshall for Wrist Chats with Afirm.